Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. When glass bottles clink against each other, I like I salivate. Like, I'm <laughs> like I can hear glass bottles clinking from a mile away. Like uh-huh. I can smell beer. Like every day we brew beer at the lab, it never gets old to me. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, By All Means. BevSource is perhaps one of the biggest beverage industry players you don't know about. You see, behind many of the brands you love, from Mike's Hard Lemonade and Celsius Energy Drinks to Paps Brewing Company, is BevSource, a St. Paul-based company that provides beverage development, sourcing, and production. Everything from providing the cans that hold your beer to helping develop and test an entirely new drink idea. Today, BevSource is one of the largest packing and ingredient distributors in North America, with $250 million in annual revenue. All from an opportunity Janet Johansson saw in 2002 when she was just 24 years old. It's a success story that has drawn attention and awards in recent years, but today we talked to Janet about her recent transition out of the day-to-day operation and the 18 years it took to build this business into a success story. Years without days off, without financial security, without enough help. None of that discouraged Janet for even a minute. She is a born entrepreneur. As a kid, I grew up uh, with four kids in our family, second oldest, so the middle forgotten child, right? Mm. Oldest got everything, youngest got everything. Two great parents, both educators. Um, And then really as a kid, I think entrepreneurship starts young. Mm Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, you know, you played house as kids, right? You all pick a room during summer vacation. And, you know, my sister would get the the bedroom. Well, I'd pick the kitchen because then I could charge my siblings for food for lunch, <laughs> right? So, or, and then I picked the living room to charge them to watch TV. So I charging, think charging, always charging, always charging kids. <laughs> um, so that's how, like, that's how we got started. We were a great, loving family. And, it, you know, that's. Did you recognize at that early age that that was business, that you were destined to go into business. Is that what you majored in in college? It is what I majored in college. However, I knew at a young age, both of my parents were Catholic school teachers, and I knew at a young age I didn't want to have a $6,000 income and raise for a family and four kids. Uh That was a struggle. I saw that, right? Mom worked second shift. Dad worked in the summers as a bartender. Yeah. I knew that's not the future that I wanted, and I had to do something different than that path. Hmm. And so, yeah, started into business and spend time with, in education as my hobby with Junior Achievement and other organizations. Got it. When you graduated, I mean, you know, your LinkedIn profile, it's just all BevSource. That's it. Like, did you just literally start this company the minute you graduated? Where did you get the idea? Did you work for anybody before you started your company? I did. Uh, so graduated from college, tried to get a job, right? Traditional mm-hmm. American Express call center. I Mm. was going to work in the call center just to get started. I wanted to be in financial services and do mutual fund investing. I spent a year in Japan, Mm. managed a Japanese mutual fund, quickly found out that Morgan Stanley wasn't going to hire me in Manhattan. What? Yeah, I know. They lost. So the call center at American Express, they make you take all those those quizzes, you know, on personality. Mm -hmm. And apparently I failed because I couldn't even get a call center job. (laughs) So uh, you've got a great voice. Well, who knows? I mean, I guess I couldn't problem solve. I I misthought about the questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ended up getting a job at a brewery in Minnesota. So Mm. it's called Minnesota Brewing. It is now the Keg and Case Market on West 7th Street, Schmidt uh, above it. And I was like, this is great, right? I grew up in Milwaukee. I was like, I'm 21 years old. I can drink beer. And actually, the last interview question was, do you drink beer? And I was like, what does a 21-year-old say to that? And so as creative and witty as I could get, I said, well, I'm Catholic and I'm from Milwaukee. <laughs> and I got the job. <gasps> you got the job. So started there in about 
80% of the beer that was made there was not Grain Belt and Pig's Eye, what people thought was made there. Mm -hmm. It was really contract-manufactured products. So whether it was private labels for Trader Joe's or Costco, we did Pete's Wicked Ale, we did Dorothy's Root Beer back, James Page, all Mm. of those old brands. And then we also were shipping about 3 million cases a year to Japan. And I was like, ooh, I get to use my Japanese Mm -hmm. in the state of Minnesota. And so that's kind of how it got started and how I got into contract beverage manufacturing. So you're there working pretty low on the totem pole. Did you, what was your idea? I mean, did you start thinking, I could do this better? I could do this differently? No, it was always people ahead of me that saw more in me than I saw in myself. So like when I got the job there, I was... Yeah, the export assistant. And I quickly found out that the export manager was drunk by 10 a.m. every day. And they were like, this 21-year-old can do a better job eventually. Uh-huh. And so I was there. And sure enough, you know, at some point he exits and I become the export and contract sales manager and learn about operations and different beverage formulations and all sorts of great beverage stuff. And what did you, what did you like about it? What did you like about the industry besides the beer? Yeah, what I liked about it was I liked learning Japanese and I liked how cultures talk to each other. And then it opened up my world to we put in a new production line for Mike's Hard Lemonade. We were the first U.S. co-packer of Mike's Hard Lemonade in the country. Mm -hmm. And we put in new equipment and the equipment didn't talk to each other, just like people don't talk to each other in the world without a translator. So we had equipment from Germany. The filler was talking German and the conveyor belts were speaking Alan Bradley out of Milwaukee and they didn't talk to each other. I'm like, this is fascinating that these things don't talk. So we hire consultants because that's what happens when things don't work. Well, eventually we're still not producing cases and the brewery goes out of business. And so what I thought was fun was kind of that, how does equipment work? How do we get things to move faster? How do processes move faster? I love process improvement. And then eventually I loved the customers. Hmm. So in so you were there for like three years. Three years. Okay. And then what happened in 2002? You decided to leave? So in 2002, uh, they started to put in an ethanol plant a year before. They started having these financing issues with this new production line that they put in that couldn't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And we borrowed money from Bremer Bank. And eventually, because we weren't putting cases out the back door, we couldn't pay the bank bank. Mm. And so at that point, we filed bankruptcy. I lost my job. Ah. And my boss at the time, we had talked like, God, I wish there was a company out there that would bring people to us when they were ready, when they knew what a distributor was, when their, their artwork was in a die line, all of the, the jargon. Mm-hmm. And we said, might as well start this. I see. So, so Minnesota Brewing Company filed for bankruptcy. You don't have any baggage from that because you were just, you were an employee. I was an employee. I had no kids. I was charging my roommates for rent. Maybe back to the (laughs) entrepreneurship. I bought a first house for $125,000 and that was expensive. But I knew if I could have my roommates pay the rent, I could live for free. Yeah. 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 Good for you. So I had no risk. So, and you had all these learnings. You had seen what went wrong and what you could do better. So did it, was it like immediate next day, start working on how you're going to build this company your way? Yeah, it it starts right away. Um, It started uh, at Gordy's in Little Canada, you know, the big Nokia cell phone back then. Uh This Japanese guy called my my boss at the time and was like, can I talk to Janet? And and, uh, so he hands me the phone. He's like, Janet, you have to help me find a new brewery. And I said, well, would you pay me? And I think I charged him a quarter a case. Like, so we made like $5,000 a year off this one customer. Uh Uh-huh. Mick is still a customer of ours 21 years later, and that's how it got started. We just said yes and said we would try it. And when you're talking about we, I mean, did you have partners when you started BevSource? Did, were there people from the brewing company that came with you? Yeah, so I had a partner. We were 50-50 partners, and mm-hmm. that's also probably an entrepreneurship story there is how partnerships work. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think about seven years ago, it was time to part ways. I had a bigger vision for the company and wanted to take it to a different level. And so we we did a partner buyout and he moved his way and I took it from 40 million to quarter billion. How about that? How about that? <laughs> are you are you on good terms? Was it a... That's most ish. partnerships. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there was some remorse from his side, but hmm. I mean, I think we're all better bef- because of it. I've learned a lot from him and from a partnership, and I wouldn't do it any different 
now because mm-hmm. of how much I learned through that process. Sure. So when you started BevSource, you were, what, 22? 24. 24. 24. Okay. Um, you've had three years of experience under your belt. You've got, you know, a lot of energy. Did you know how to start a company? That's different than working for a company and being good at your job. It's interesting because as an intern, I actually interned at the Neighborhood Development Center in St. Paul. And back then, I think it was 1998, they had me write kind of, you know, I took like clip art and I may have been WordPress back then. And they had me make a pamphlet on how to start a business. Hmm. So that was my research project for the summer. And so I went down to the James J. Hill Library, which beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I clip arted all these. You got to go to the Secretary of State and you got to get a FEIN. What is that? Like you got to have an operating agreement. So like it was fun that I got to do that research as a job. And so then when it was time to start a company, it was pretty easy. The hardest part, because I wasn't I had some accounting and some financial background, but chart of accounts, that was another, Mm -hmm. you know, tried to get some help there from a volleyball friend that we play volleyball with. And so you just talk to people and use the resources and they're usually happy to help. That's, to start with. that's the admin side. But what about the fact that, I mean, you were literally starting with, I mean, you needed manufacturing, right? Yeah. Did you have money to do that? How did you set that up? No, we're very low asset based. So all of our clients are sending us money up front. We organize all the production run and they pay us a fee. So it was really low risk. So we're not using a lot of capital. Mm-hmm. The only capital we took out over time was the SBA loan that I took out to buy out my partner. So we never borrowed money, never had to do venture debt or any of that stuff. And Mm -hmm. it's a great business. That's why private equity probably likes us too. Amazing. So, okay, so let's, this is probably a good point to to tell everybody about the business. Tell us what BevSource does and, and what it did in the early days. Yeah, so in the early days, we would help people with beverage development. We want to make your dreams a reality. So you have an idea. You might have worked for Rockstar. They never came out with bubblegum flavored and you thought it was a good idea. Or you're a doctor that wants to come out with an MCT oil beverage that's good for your brain. You're a doctor. You don't know how to do beverage. So you hire us and we Mm -hmm. do all the beverage development. So that was us for about a decade or so. And then we ended up getting bigger and being able to finance things. And we said, hey, we're buying a lot of aluminum cans for Celsius and Killcliff and we started crisp and hard cider and not your father's root beer. We're buying all these materials. We should buy them more collectively. So strategically, after buying out my partner, that's what we changed to. We bought all of the packaging and raw materials, and that's what really accelerated the business. So the business that we got into, and I'm sure you've heard this story before, it's not the business that you end up being in. And so we really provide, we're the largest packaging distributor in the country, exclusive to beverage. Mm-hmm. And people use us because we know more than just about the packaging. We know about the carbonation levels and how THC, you know, sticks to the interior liner material of Mm. cans. We know how to test things when they start corroding. So you buy from us because we're the beverage experts and we can be your sixth man on the bench and help. So you you don't get all the glory. You're doing all the work, but we your are name the, is not on the label. We are the Oz behind the scene. <laughs> yeah. And so like, yeah, there's all these great brands. I love Stilly and, you know, like, they sell for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and our name's not even in the article. Right. <laughs> but, we're, but we're their operations team is so that, that they can be low, low asset. Sure. And is that frustrating or is it like, look, you're, you, you can just look at your bank account and it all works out? For me, it was never about the money. And, it, you know, as I've listened to the show, this entrepreneurship journey where I've heard of people that started the business, it wasn't about the money. It was about mm-hmm. making customers happy and building a team. And getting it to this point has been great. Now there's money, but there is not money for 18 years. <laughs> really? 18 years. 18 years, yeah. But you knew, you were confident that it was, yeah, that it was all going to... Yeah, you make a living, you raise some kids. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a, a decent living, but mm-hmm. until you can really scale a business, it, it's tough until you get to that point. Yeah. So um, can you name drop a few of of the brands that you really are responsible for, even though your name isn't out there? Yeah. So Celsius was a customer for, we started them. They were glass bottles. I think I know more about their beverage history than their current CEO. And I love John too. But, you know, they're like, oh, we want to come out with, you know, sachets, which are like the crystal light packet things mm-hmm. that you pour. I was like, oh, you did that in 2008, you know. 
Um, and so we've been working with them. Our, our relationship has changed over time. We were man- fully managing production up until a couple of years ago, and then they took that in-house. And now we do piloting work and some other things for them. Uh, Crispin Hard Ciders, another mm-hmm. great Minnesota story. Yeah, Joe Heron. I just talked to him about his latest beverage. That ah, he's yes. Are he, you involved with that one too? He's called a couple times. <laughs> uh, Joe is brilliant, and yeah. so yeah. So Crispin sells to Miller now, mm-hmm. Molson Coors, mm-hmm. and now Jason Dayton buys it back um, at Minneapolis Cider Company, who was also a, Minis- a, a client of ours. So John Stavig came in with the the class and said, "Hey, we need to start this cider. They all want their own federal." alcohol license. And I was like, well, that's not going to work because there's 20 of you in the class. You all have to have background checks. I said, You'll, you, you guys should run under our license if you want it launched within this semester. Uh, <laughs> did they get it done? So we launched it. Uh, Lionheart Cider is how it got launched. Wow. And then eventually Jason and his crew um, bought the company from hmm. the University of Minnesota and then continued it to Minneapolis Cider Company. Super wow. proud of those stories. But it's not all Minnesota either. I mean, you're working with brands around the world. I remember when you were working with Snoop Dogg. We work with did, Snoop Dogg. We, did you have any meetings with Snoop Dogg? That's I did what I really not, want to know. I, I, I'm not a big celebrity fan. <laughs> Other people, you know, like they come to the state fair, everybody else gets the tickets. Um, so, but every celebrity wants one. You know, we did Mary J. Blige mm-hmm. and we did uh, Kevin Euclid with the Red Sox. And um, yeah, so it's, it's fun to watch what people come out with. And when it's a big name, are they typically involved? They're not. <laughs> um, it, Shocking. That's not actually true. So um, E-40 is a rapper. So uh-huh. Earl, everybody know, knew him as Earl. He was. Mm-hmm. So like when his bills weren't being paid on time, it was because he was in the tour bus and he was not signing checks until Thursday because that's when the tour bus was. Hmm. He signed all of his own checks, looked at all the invoices. So each of them are very different. They're all different. Um, you talked about in in the early days in in 2002 it was you know the, the the dentist who had a vision for a beverage I mean was it really that individual I mean was it really mostly small individuals as opposed to brands that just needed help Yeah early on it was definitely individuals and it, that has changed throughout time over the last 20 years and now we help a lot more established companies develop new brands um, so like we did um, a, an all-natural energy drink for a very popular celebrity that was uh, produced recently. And is it not out yet? Can it's you not, not say? I, I don't know if I confidentially can <laughs> say. Um, I think he was in the movie mm. Moana. has got some muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, But they're not good at doing things that don't happen within their walls of a manufacturing facility. When they need to co-pack it somewhere else, we're an easy solution. Get it to market quickly. This needs to happen. They have all the distribution. They have all the money, and we just yeah. make it all happen. So. And BevSource has the capabilities of doing everything from literally making the beverage, the marketing, the packaging, the distribution, everything. Everything but the sales and marketing. So okay. typically our clients are brilliant, brilliant branders and marketers mm-hmm. that know how to do that already, right? Like Snoop Dogg already knows how to brand his own stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got a following. We don't do any of that. They, gin and juice. Gin and juice. They say get 50,000 <laughs> cases on the floor by yeah. Friday. And you can do that. We do that. And do so we that. do everything from formulation to the alcohol uh, regulations part of it, also THC regulations mm-hmm. now. and figuring out how things go into packages. I always say that we're putting things in aluminum cans that don't belong there, and we're expecting Mm. them to actually not explode Mm -hmm. and rust and things like that. Mm. So we figure out how to make that shelf-stable product that, you know, MCT oil and all these other crazy things are going into. And then we manage the ongoing production so that our clients can just focus on sales and marketing. And you do bottles as well, we should say. Yes, we do glass, we do the sachets, we Mm -hmm. do two-ounce shots. You name, you name it. it. Okay. Um, you mentioned THC. We've mentioned lots of different beverages. Things have changed so much since you started in 2002. Talk a little bit about what the beverage industry was like then. What, what, were, we, was that, what were we drinking then? Was that wine coolers? Was that <laughs> what was happening in 2002? Yeah, it, that was the early days of what we call flavored malt beverages. So the mm. Mike's Hard Lemonade was interesting. I've ne- I no longer judge a beverage. So 20 years ago when Mike's came out, we were making other hard lemonades. Like there was a product called Two Dogs. I think that was closer to the Zima days. Mm, Zima, You know, right. the wine coolers, the Bartles and James. Yeah. And 
I was like, oh, this lemonade thing isn't going to work out, right? We've done this before. Well, it's about timing. It's about marketing. They marketed more to men than to women. You know, the two dogs had two cute little pudgy dogs on it. Mm-hmm. You know, they targeted at, uh, the population of all Michaels in the country. I don't know how many there are, but if every Mike buys a six-pack, they're doing okay. <laughs> um, and so it was really, it was a small industry. It was a lot of individuals. And then we really moved towards people being more open to trying new things. And so in 2008, during the recession, people stuck to their, it was very similar to COVID. So when COVID came, I was, I was, I've seen this script before, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2008, people stuck to their brands, but then as the economy recovered, people were like, oh, let me treat myself to something new. Let me try something with some different flavors. Let me hmm. try a different effect. They were willing to spend you know, four dollars on a on a drink versus you know a dollar on a Budweiser just to try something. That was the the Red Bull Jägermeister days, yeah. right? And so people were willing to try things, and that continued into what we see today. And so we see a lot of people getting into beverages. We also saw the industry change, whereas in two thousand two or early two thousands, all of the big beverage companies came out with their brands. So when Mike's Hard Lemonade came out. So did Doc Otis and, you know, Anheuser-Busch comes out with all of their stuff to compete. Mm -hmm. And they threw away millions of cases. They found out that that was the wrong way to do beverage development. So now what they did starting kind of 2010 is they would give seed funding to all these beverage companies to give you a half a million here, half a million here, half a million here. And then they decide, you know, the first one to five million bucks. Ah. We get first right of refusal to buy you. So you mean the big guys started realizing maybe we're not so good at coming up with the cool new thing. We need someone independent to do that and then we'll acquire it. Yeah. And do it diversified. Right. So invest in, you know, 50 different brands, maybe two rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And we didn't spend millions of dollars on these other brands that never rose to the top. Is that still happening as much today? It's slowed down a little bit, but that is still what happens today. The whole craft beer boom, which, I mean, certainly happened right here in our backyard with Surly and and many others. Um, How did that play out for BevSource? Were you, did that, do you do beer? We do beer. um, A lot less kind of mainstream beer. We sell a lot of packaging to craft brewers. And so when we moved to kind of that packaging model, I used to sell packaging on the side and things like that. And so these old friends would call. I think I sold helps sell Omar's first can. <laughs> but they called and they said, hey, you're buying cans for Celsius and these other, like, can we buy cans from you? And we're like, well, I guess, sure. Uh-huh. So that's how we kind of started selling to craft breweries. And, and now we have a, a, the lab as we do quality services. And so a really good resource for craft brewers to come to when they're having problems with their brewing or they want to come out with a hard seltzer and they don't know how to brew one, they mm-hmm. call us or... Mm-hmm. We provide uh, bulk alcohol if they want to do a ready-to-drink spirit drink and help with formulation and things like that. Were you bullish on seltzers when that whole trend started? The trends are all the same. Really? (laughs) It it will stick around. So like flavored malt beverages always two rise to the top. So you end up with Mike's Hard Lemonade and Schmirnoff Ice. Same thing happened in a hard soda, right? So everybody came out with a hard soda. Not your fault. There's root beer kind of sticks around. Same thing helps in seltzer. Everybody comes out with a seltzer, a couple stick around, and if you can get some market share, that's great. Brilliant marketing by, you know, Boston Beer and Mike's Hard Lemonade, who own White Claw and Truly. Like, mm-hmm. no, oh, you didn't think you were drinking a Mike's. Right. But that's White Claw. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so that was really brilliant, and that, that rises to the top, and then there's some other good players that are in there. So we're seeing the same in ready-to-drink spirits, mm-hmm. so cocktails in a can, and... We'll see the same thing. People, you know, Jim Beam will come out with theirs and everybody else, and then two will stay. Can you already see what's beyond that? Can you, or you don't really need to. They'll just bring it to you. Yeah, people come to us with it. Yeah. Um, I hope sustainable packaging comes as an Mm. innovation. So, like, yes, there's flavor development and innovation, and I bore people that the reason why the seltzer market changes because you pay attention to the regulations and the way that got taxed is the hmm. same way it's taxed as beer as yeah. opposed to be taxed as vodka. So paying attention to those regulations and then also what science can do. So the yeast ferments differently. So you were able to t- make better tasting seltzers than you were a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And so it's studying ingredients, studying the regulations. And then some of the greatest beverages are disrupting the distribution system. 
What, what do you mean by that? So, you know, when you can do wine direct to consumer and things like that. So if you distribute differently, or maybe you start to distribute your product in tanning salons, that's different than maybe the traditional distribution market. Hmm. And so people can be innovative with a beverage in different ways, whether it's packaging or distribution. Which brings us to THC, yes, which is popping up all over. Does that really change things? Is that a lot different from a manufacturing standpoint for you? It is different. So the ingredient itself, uh, depending on who you get your supply from, can can vary, and how you how it stays in solution. So like early on in THC, you know maybe all of it floats to the top and you don't get any effect because it's pulling from the bottom of the tank. And so really getting it to emulsify and stay in solution is important. And we're at that point now. So typically when you get a beverage, it's What's claimed on the label is probably the dosage you're getting. That was not true in the beginning. And that was not true with craft beer either. Like bad quality product turns people off to the industry. Mm -hmm. And so people say, oh, I didn't have an effect or they had an over effect. And that's a problem. Yeah. Um, But THC is an interesting category. We're still learning. Even with Mike's Hard Lemonade, when we first produced that in 2000, Mm -hmm. those cans leaked too because we had never put a corrosive liquid like that in an aluminum can. We put it in a standard beer can and expected it not to corrode, but the citric acid in Mike's Hard Lemonade is much more corrosive than a beer. So it sounds so appetizing. I know doesn't it doesn't. It? I know, I know, I know. This is what we pour down our throats. I know, I when, know. When they, so when a Mike Hard, Mike's Hard Lemonade comes to you or some other brand today, um, do they already have the formulation worked out and they're saying, here's the recipe, make it? 50-50. So sometimes they, they're close, like they're close to getting it done. Here's the concept. Here's the flavors we want to use. We're pretty close. But yes, can you pilot it at your pilot facility? There's several pilots that we do for very large customers. And they go, oh, that tea has bacteria in it. We can't use that particular tea until we maybe homogenize it or pasteurize it ahead of time to use in production. So they're learning a lot through the piloting process before they go to launch it. I see. And you have scientists or technicians who know this stuff and know what's going to happen. We have amazingly smart people. And Mm -hmm. it also is trial and error, right? Our our people don't know everything. We haven't done every ingredient and every package. And so that's why piloting is so important. It's expensive. I know everybody's like, oh, $50,000 for a pilot run. That's a lot cheaper than throwing away a million dollars worth of finished package. When we get back, how Janet finally decided to take on private equity money and what that did for the business. Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. When you're looking for business advice, everyone's got an opinion, an angle, a surefire five-step plan. But if you want to know whether any of it actually makes sense for your business, who do you turn to? Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank, because understanding is everything. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. It didn't take long for BevSource to prove its business model. Take a listen. How quickly after you launched BevSource were you profitable? How long did that take? Uh, It was about a year, but we worked in a basement and we bought a couple computers for two, three thousand dollars. And eventually we hired an employee and that was our biggest expense for, I think we paid her a whopping like 28 grand back then. And, mm-hmm. and that was our biggest liability. So, I mean, we were barely profitable yeah. um, in the first year. But, but, you, but enough so that you were confident that this was going to work. No. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep getting more clients and you keep doing the right thing and contract manufacturers and ingredient suppliers would start referring us, right? That, that was when people were lost and they didn't know what to do. And they said, call Janet, call BevSource. Well, we were called Production Services International back then. You change your name a couple of times mm-hmm. like everybody else. But um, call them and they'll help you. When, when we got confidence with the suppliers is when I, I thought it was going to work. So was there a moment, do you remember, a moment where you're like, wow, we could move out of the basement or this is really going to... So we moved out of one basement and into another house because I was still scared it wasn't going to work, uh-huh. right? Because that, that is like, I, I now, you know, when we first moved out of the basement, it was one salary we were supporting. When we moved 
out of the second house. I think there were 11 people. We were in the bedrooms and the Ethernet cords were running up the stairs. And um, people called it like a halfway house because we had a lot of beer labels and mm-hmm. things like that. And uh, but when we bought our office building, I think I was like, oof, yeah. there's no turning back now. And when how long was that after launch? Uh, it was about 10 years after launch. Okay. So 10 years. Yeah. 10 years of feeling like, could you take a vacation? Were you paying yourself from the beginning? Were you putting money away? I always paid ourselves a little bit. Uh, always lived below your means. I'm sure that's a common theme. Um, didn't take a lot of vacations. I, I think what people, I mean, obviously it's been talked about with entrepreneurs, is really I'm up till 3 a.m. And I remember talking to, you know, friends, family, like, why are you doing that? Like, why are you up at 3 a.m. at a production run? And because nobody else is going to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So for the first probably 15 years, if I didn't work that day, Mm -hmm. I didn't get paid by a client. Hmm. And until you move your business to where people are helping you do that work, that's when you can finally take a vacation. Yeah. When did that happen for you? It was probably about 12 years in, started to hire some people that would go to those production runs at three in the morning and things like that, helping people with accounting. And Were, but, were you still peeking in? Were you still, would it still kind of keep you up or? I am a kid in the candy store. If I, and, and unfortunately things moved to aluminum, but when glass bottles clink against each other, I like, I salivate. I, I'm <laughs> like, I can hear glass bottles clinking from a mile away. Like uh-huh. I can smell like that. I can smell beer. Like every day we brew beer at the lab. Mm-hmm. It never gets old to me. Wow. That's amazing that you've stayed that excited. And I mean, and that's that's kind of proof of why you've been so successful. Um, so you've you've had a couple of big leaps since then. I mean, does it feel like it was sort of steady growth? Was there ever, uh, you know, a, a year that things went the wrong direction or has it? Yes. When, when was that? Of course. Yeah. Um, and particularly buying out my partner. I knew that was a financial. I had emotionally gone through it. So the, the partner split up was... Either he was going to end up with the company or I was going to end up with the company. I emotionally went through, if I don't end up with the company, I'm okay. The, mm. ki- the kids will be fine, right? Yeah. The kids probably will get a better paying job than what we were paying them anyways. <laughs> so I emotionally went through it. And then when we went through mediation, it was a financial, it was a business decision for me. And so I ended up wanting to pay more. And I knew walking into that, and I also asked my husband prior, I said, I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to offer this much money. This is my cap. Mm-hmm. And I said, are you in? And a, a great mentor of mine, Krista O'Malley, Krista said, I said, no, we've, my husband and I have talked about it. He's, she's like, no, 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 no. Ask specifically again, are you in if I do this? Because mm-hmm. we're going to be broke. <laughs> because all of that money goes to pay off the loan, right? So yeah. all the money that the company is generating pays the loan down. And so I asked my husband, Sean, I said, are you in? He's like, I'm going to cry. Hmm. He's like, I'm always in. Is your, your husband has never worked in the business? He is not. We've learned that I'm not a good wife and a good business partner. So we do real estate investing. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> One, One or, or the, the other. other. We, I did real estate investing with him. And eventually uh, I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan. And Tony Robbins said, you can only catch one rabbit. Hmm. So think about yourself catching two rabbits. Right? Do you ever catch a rabbit? Mm-hmm. And he goes, a-, a lot of you entrepreneurs love having rabbits, and you're just like out rabbit hunting. You yeah. never catch one, and that was that was changing. Um, I said, okay, I'm not going to catch the real estate rabbit. I'll let Sean catch the real estate rabbit. I'll catch the BevSource rabbit. Hmm. So he's entrepreneurial as well, your husband? He is. Yeah, I think with a little bit of a push. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a good balance. It's a good balance. He's much more conservative. He worries about the children. He worries about risk. He worries about, you know, our investments. Uh, I'm a little more free for all. Yeah. What, what What do you think? What do you attribute that to? Were either of your parents that way as teachers? It doesn't just just how you were born? My dad's pretty laid back. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, I realized later on, my dad's very quiet. He doesn't say a lot. And, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago, I said, I, I reflected and I was like, my dad never told me no. Hmm. My dad never said there's a limit. There's never a ceiling, right? Like he could have said, oh, you know, you're a girl. What are you doing in the beverage? But I didn't have a dad like that. He didn't say anything, which was probably what I needed. Hmm. Um and so my dad never really worried about it. Like, I, I remember summer vacation. Like, he never worried about the money. Like, I remember, he's going to kill me, but he borrowed money from the bank because we didn't have enough money to pay the bills. My mom found out. She goes, what are you doing? 
And he goes, well, I borrowed money. That's what the commercial told me to do. You know, because that's what it was. Like, you didn't know any better when you're a 22-year-old dad with four kids. And so, like, back to financial literacy and junior achievement, I was like, oh, my gosh. People don't know what money is and Mm -hmm. how that affects your life. So my dad never really worried about anything, and maybe I don't either. Yeah, wow. Well, but, I mean, obviously you were thinking about, you understood what it was going to mean when you bought out your partner. I did. So what were the years right after that like for you personally and professionally? Uh, personally and professionally, it was a lot of work, right? Mm-hmm. So at that time, I had two small children. Uh, I knew I had to get on airplanes and visit customers and suppliers, and, and that was the deal. So with my husband, it was, I'm going to be out of the house a lot more, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like all entrepreneurs on your show, I'm sure, I love working. Yeah. I love being in front of customers. I love being with the team. So I find joy in that. Financially, it's a struggle. Um, and then I think at one point, you know, in your lowest points, I remember calling, we're an EOS traction company, Justin mm-hmm. Cox. I called Justin and I was like, Justin, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. And he goes, Janet, you can turn around a company in 90 days and you can kill a company in 90 days. Hmm. Make a choice. Wow. So how big was the company when you became the sole owner? We were about 40 million in revenue. Pro- how many people? Probably 30 or so. Okay. Um, and did you feel like you had they were on board? You had their support and trust, and you don't know, right? You don't know till it's you don't know. And yeah. I was nervous, right? Uh, who aligns with me? Who aligns with the company? You know? Yeah. Um, and nobody quit. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Quit. You had a big vision at that point. You knew that there was more growth possible. What was it? What gave you that confidence and what did you see? What was the big opportunity that you hadn't reached yet with BevSource? Yeah, I think for, it, it wasn't about money. It was the customers that constantly found us because I'm not a marketer. I'm an operations gal. I love equipment, things like that. And so we didn't market the company. And when customers would call us and say, oh, my God, I wish I would have found you two years ago and a million dollars ago. Mm. So I felt we were doing the industry a disservice by not letting people know what we do. And so the more customers that told us that, the more it was like, okay, I now believe in marketing. We have a director of marketing. And, uh, Is that when that all started, that you became a little louder about who you are? And yeah, and we're still not all that. I only invest a little bit in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're investing a lot more in marketing now, but, and, and you know, really on the sales side too, up until probably 12 years ago, 100% of our business was referred to us. We didn't have to do marketing, but Mm -hmm. that's what we were. We were just a small boutique firm until we started to really want to impact more brands. I think that's a common theme that I hear from lots of entrepreneurs where it's like you get to that point where it's successful, but then there's maybe this plateau. And how do you get to the next level? How do you know? How do you know if the next level exists? You try a lot of things. So the only things that people hear about are the things that worked, right? We buy all the packaging and that works. And now we're a quarter billion dollars and Mm -hmm. we impact thousands of brands. The other things that don't work, we opened a tap room that opened and closed over COVID a couple of times and ended up being a distraction, right? Like that was a distraction when, you know, your tap room might make a half a million bucks. That's a distraction from the $250 million that you probably should be focusing on. Hmm. I am infamous for coming up with ideas. Uh, not all of them are good. So you might want to sit on your ideas a little longer. And then you've heard it before on the show, too, you know, solving a need that the customer already knows they have, mm-hmm. as opposed to I love coming up with things that the customer doesn't know they have a problem, but they actually need it because I told them they need it and they do need it. Yeah. But educating them that they need it is an uphill battle. Huh. OK. So so better not to do that and just focus on filling the, the needs. Were there are there things that you're doing today, services that you offer that you weren't, tw- you know, when you took over as sole owner? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, we didn't do any of the packaging and distribution. We didn't do any of the piloting. We didn't do any of the quality. So we're doing all of that to really fully support brands that are in the beverage industry. And, um, you know, Jerry Kostalski helped us build our lab. She was 80 years old when she helped. And her video is just so powerful. She's like, if we can help more people experience better craft beverages, that's her dream. Hmm. And so for us, it's a, a rising tide raises all boats. Like it's not about us versus them. We want all people to have a good experience in beverage. Yeah. And so do you credit the just epic growth over the last several years 
to that, to just adding more functions, more services or marketing or a combination? What, what do you think the magic sauce was? Oh, you have heard this one before. It's people. It's culture. It's mm-hmm. building a culture of people who genuinely and deeply care about each other. Hmm. That is what matters. And when people care about each other, I mean, I think I read a statistic recently that people only bring about 65% of themselves to work every day. And as an entrepreneur, we bring 100%. Well, we bring 120%, right? Yeah, whether you want it or not. <laughs> and if you create a culture where people feel like they're included and their, their mind matters, they bring more than 65%. And that's an easy way to grow the business without growing people. Hmm. That, the that's, headcount. It's, yeah. a, it's a great concept. Can you give me any examples of how do you actually do that? It's the micro moments. So, yes, I mean, you'll hear it from everybody else and all the business books will teach you, you know, you have a vision and core values and all of that. It's true. And I still, you know, do all final interviews. I call it a scare you away speech. And I say, do not come here if you do not love the customer. Hmm. And I use the word love very boldly. And if you don't love helping a team, don't come. Wrong place. Go work somewhere else. You're probably a wonderful ballerina. or I don't know what you do, <laughs> but go do something that you love. because. After doing it for 20 years, I'm not here to suck your soul for a job. I want you to actually love what you do with the people you work with and making an impact on brands. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in the micro moments, I think, is where the genuine care comes from. And, you know, if I know you're having a hard time or I give you a training opportunity or, you know, I invite you to a networking breakfast, not me, but my leadership team or the management team, and it's training the managers to be good people leaders. Um, and I think that's when we changed as a company. We had middle management that was, I'm sure you've heard it before too, but individual contributors that you put into management, like, oh, they're great beverage development people, or, and then you make them the manager. That's a totally different skill set. Don't, it is. don't yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Or at least warn them ahead of time, like totally different skill set. I'll teach that to you if that's what you want to do, but it's a different mm-hmm. thing. But once we had a good middle management that really deeply cared about people, that was a game changer. Who taught you all of that? Oh, I have lots of mentors, lots of books, lots of resources. Um, yeah. But do you think, you know, a lot of times the the entrepreneur, the visionary, the, the, you know, the hustler isn't necessarily the best leader or the best person at working with the team. You seem to be both. How did you do that? I think I am both. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was not both early on. Uh, I think early on in my career, I was heads down. You walked in my office and you wanted something from me. And I was in the middle of a crisis of glass trucks tipping over. Like, I would snap your head off. I was not a good leader. Hmm. And that, that takes time and experience to then observe who the good leaders are around you. And you go, well, they don't do that. Why? If mm-hmm. I want to become the leader of this organization and, and inspire and motivate people, I can't snap people's head off when they walk in my office. Yeah, so, probably not. So you change, but just by watching. Mm-hmm. So it's a conscious decision. Yeah. But I, I loved your point about that the operators, the people who are really good at the work, are not necessarily, that doesn't automatically mean that they're good as leaders. No. But you feel like you can usually mentor them into that, or some people just not meant to do that. I think it's about mindset. If you want to, I think anybody can do anything. Mm-hmm. If you want to do it, you will do it. If not, you won't. Um, we are a very open culture. We promote people and I, I scare them away as well and say, people management is hard. You, you may hate it. And if you hate it, just raise your hand. We'll mm-hmm. move you back to an individual contributor role. And we're pretty clear about if you're an individual contributor, it's, you don't have to become a manager to get paid more money. It's about the value you create for a business. And if your value is creating banging formulas and negotiating better deals, you can be paid more than managers. It's not about that. And I think that's, you know, in this younger culture, it's about adding value and not asking for a raise. So asking for a raise is an interesting topic, but don't ask for a raise. Oh, my groceries went up. How did I add more value? Like Mm. we can process an order three times faster. So now we process 300 orders a day instead of 100. Oh, hell yeah, here's a raise. I don't know if I can swear on the show. Yeah. But yes, I will give you a raise. But you have to show people the value that you're adding. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Can you talk a little bit about private equity and how that works and when that came into play and how that changed things for BevSource? Absolutely. Uh, So my 
opinion of private equity early on in my career, I had seen these big contract manufacturers get private equity from KKR. I hope KKR doesn't listen, but <laughs> all, you know, Blackstone or BlackRock, yeah. whatever they're called. Yep. And it was ugly. Mm-hmm. Like every time I saw private equity go into a big co-packer, everybody got fired. There was no money. Da, 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 da. They stripped it for parts. And so, um, you know, as we got big enough in private equity, you started calling. I'm like, oh, I don't know who these people are, but I'll eventually took a phone call. And, um, and I found out there's a difference between kind of big private equity and growth private equity. Mm-hmm. And in 2001, 2000, or 2000, or not 2001, 2021, I knew I wanted to grow. I wanted to build a board of directors. I wanted to really accelerate the business. And I just leaned on advisors and I said, how do I do that? And they said, yep, you can build a board and do all that stuff. You didn't have a board until 2021. No. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's also right. So now we're, I don't remember what we were at that 90 million. And I was like, ah, I need somebody to save me from myself at some point. Right? <laughs> Did uh, you have a CFO like yeah. full time? You had those full time executive roles. Yeah, we had executive roles, but I was still the ultimate decision maker. If I decided to build a contract manufacturing facility for 20 million bucks and that was a bad decision, no one was there to save me from that decision. Mm-hmm. And so I said, how do I, what do I do next? And they said, yep, you can do that just like other entrepreneurs have, you know, and then, you know, you do acquisitions or organic growth and you get, here, here's your 10-year path. Or you can take private equity money. They can invest with you and they teach you how to do it. And I've always, I've never been a, a good student. I always, I, I, I knew how to use the system in school. I think I had a 24 ACT, which is probably okay, but I was top of my class because I figured out how to take tests. That's hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So like always figuring out the system, system. And if private equity knows how to do it and do it faster, why wouldn't I do that? Mm-hmm. And so I took a call from a private equity company. Um, I did it less traditionally. I didn't hire an investment banker, although I consulted with them later after I got an offer. And they said, the investment bankers I talked to, they said, it's a pretty decent offer. I'm not mm-hmm. sure we could get you any more than that. Um, and so- that, that's kind of how that got started. And does it feel like, I mean, you feel like that was the right move yeah. for the company? Yeah. Uh, great move. Great board of directors. The people on our board. So, so Susan Gambriella is uh, on our board of directors. She's the president of Kimberly Clark, used to be chief mm. of staff for Coca-Cola for wow. 20 years. I didn't know Susan. Susan would not be on my board if private equity wasn't backing the business. Sure. Other folks like that. And so building a board of people who genuinely, and only people on the board came because of who we were. I mean, they're not getting a huge check by any means. This is small private equity. This is not big. They get a yeah. huge paycheck. They're there because they want to give back and help a, a young woman CEO. Yeah. What does it feel like walking into the boardroom of this company that you built from scratch and now you've got these big wigs and you're a big fancy company? Uh, honestly, I think board meetings are boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no doubt. But but is there, I mean, you must have some pinch me moments in all of this. Guess? I don't know. I don't think, no, it's just another day. I mean, (laughs) I mean, if I, I I have walk up music, so I like music. It sets the mood. So like if I pick up. What's your walk up song? Uh, tonight it's good as hell by Lizzo. Oh, good one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, the. There is a pinch me moment in there. I think the pinch me moment was when I got the offer in downtown Chicago and I was like, oh, this this is it. Like, I, I could sign this deal. Like, this is real money. The private equity the offer. The private equity offer. Yeah. Like, it, that was the real first time that I was like, wow, this business is actually worth something that somebody's willing to pay me for. Yeah. <laughs> and was that kind of the life-changing moment for you personally? Or do you feel like that had already, you were already able to take a, a nicer salary and do nice things as a family before then? Yeah, we were doing nice things as a family. And I think the private equity, uh, people ask like, oh, when you close with private equity, like what'd you do? And I'm cheap. I bought our family a membership to the YMCA for the year. Oh I was like, "Woo! I spent a hundred bucks a month, right?" Like, because not we, even lifetime. Nah. You're going to the YMCA. Yeah, no, just the YMCA. You gotta, yeah. No fancy trips. No private islands. Nope, nope. I still drive a 2015 Toyota Highlander. Like, <laughs> I, I don't find value in those things. I find mm-hmm. value in relationships, and um, and I think that's another important takeaway for entrepreneurs and anybody actually. 
It's the relationships, and even for you, it's the relationships you built 20 years ago. Yeah. That are the people that are around now that bring the greatest joy in your life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people realize that every phone call that they make and every dinner that they have early in their career, that is, those are your people right. in 20 years. And do not discount that. And so, you know, yes, private equity and all, all this great stuff, it's still about people and relationships because that's what brings joy and happiness. Yeah. So speaking of leadership, your role has changed just recently. You're a little less involved in the day-to-day -day now. I am. Um, how does that feel? It's good. Um, I'm feeling very more strategic. So I've moved from the day-to-day -day CEO role into a founder board member role. Uh, as a CEO, I tend to get sucked into the details. I love the details. I still love the clinking of the glass, right? Mm -hmm. And by actually cutting my hands off and letting other people do that fully has really made me think differently about, you know, who could we partner with? How do we create a deeper relationship with some of our suppliers and customers and things like that? So it's been fun. So you're on the board. I am you, on the board. You are, you are no longer the CEO. What does that mean? Are you, do you show up? I mean, you're, can we say that you, you're not living here yeah. full time? Yeah. You're, you're po and is that part of the, the move? You wanted a little space? Um, we moved uh, remote with COVID. Okay. So uh, we went virtual. It wasn't about the space. It was about what's right for the company. And I think this next chapter for the company is having people continue to grow it differently than the way that I do it. And I think probably for most founders, it's easier to fully let it go than to kind of keep a couple strings attached. Mm -hmm. It's harder for the team not, I mean, I'll keep strings attached. That, that doesn't bother me, but yeah. it's harder for them if I still have some strings. I see. But, but how are you getting, I mean, so, so what's next for you? What's, what's, what does day-to-day -day look like now? Uh, good, you still got kids at home. Still got kids at home, but they're self-sufficient now. <laughs> um, 11 and 12 or 10 and 11. Um, for me, it is about making an impact. So it's always been about making an impact, whether it was beverage brands. Um, still love the mission of junior achievement and financial literacy. We're talking about a great new high school program, getting involved there. Uh, started Black Business as Beautiful in 2020. Um, love using my privilege to help elevate others until they have privilege, right? And so I think I'll see myself in a lot more of that work. Hmm. Is there another company up your sleeve? Would you ever go do this again? It's a good question. I don't. I would probably buy a company. Hmm. So I think what I've recently found out through, you know, private equity is I love acquisitions. Mm -hmm. There's good businesses out there. There's good operators or, you know, they just don't have a good exit plan. And yeah, I don't know if I need to do the decade of work starting again. I'd rather yeah. pick it up at year 12 and then. Yeah. Do the 12 to 16 years again. So Sure. I Interesting. Could, I could see myself buying a business. Not or, the baby stage. Not the baby the, stage. The, <laughs> the teenage years. But, you, but if you don't go through the baby stage, you never know what you know now. Right. Well, well said. I have a feeling we have not seen the last of you. There will be something, something after this. Probably. You're just too, you're not going to sit around. I probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing story, Janet. Thank you for Thank sharing you. it with us. Congratulations. Thank on you all so much. Success. Cheers to you and to BevSource. Thank you. Well, drinks are nice, but like Janet said, it's all about the people, the people that you drink with, the people that you work with. On that note, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Tara Galloway is an associate professor in the Department of Management, but even more so, she focuses her research on beer and craft brewing. And how how lucky is that? I mean, Tara, you really uh, you you gave yourself uh, quite a quite a good focus. Oh, it's it's amazing. It's something I'm very passionate about on one level. And then I also get all the benefits of having a great environment to do all that research. So it's really yes, fun. research. We, we don't use air quotes, but um, I bet a lot of professors are a little jealous at the end of the week when you're at a brewery saying you're doing your research. Um, so, t <laughs> so tell us just briefly, because it's, it is so um, similar to BevSource and what they do, what are some of your big findings or focus right now on this industry? What's interesting to you about what's happening in the industry 
of beverage? So the thing that actually got me into the craft beer industry and kind of fascinated with with it was that the craft brewer industry was doing things that we couldn't understand. So most of my research is both strategy and entrepreneurship. And according to all the theoretical things that we knew, they were doing things they weren't supposed to. And we were trying to figure out why. Okay. And so basically in the craft brew industry, brewers were willing to work with each other and help each other. Ah. And this is a concept called coopetition when you're direct competitors, but you're willing to cooperate with each other. I love that coopetition. That's good. Yeah, it's it's great. And sometimes you see it in big companies. You see Apple and Samsung actually have worked together, you know, like mm-hmm. even some of these big, you know, Goliath companies. But we were trying to figure out why this was occurring to the extent that it was. And a couple things actually that Janet had mentioned is she talked about the idea. In fact, she had a quote. She said, bad quality product turns people off from the industry. Hmm. And that, and she also used the phrase, the rising tide, the rising tide lifts all boats. And that is actually the core of the craft brew industry. And so we were trying to understand why are we directly willing to help each other? And that is part A. Part A is the idea that if you have a bad experience with a craft beer, or even in this case, we're going into the seltzers, we're going to, you know, in distilleries and, and even uh, some of these small wineries, you have to have a really good product or it can turn everyone off from the industry. And so therefore, people are willing to help each other. But even more so, there was this idea of pay it forward. People were willing to not just help. They were willing to help the next person down the line, but it wasn't reciprocal, which was the other kind of odd thing. Normally, oh, you help me, I'll help you. Mm -hmm. Instead, it was you help me, so I'll help the next person down the line. Hmm. And so we basically found through our research that the thing that was really pushing this co-opetition was that, A, there was a David and Goliath scenario. They're up against these big you know, big brewers. And they have this very strong identity. In in these industries, a lot of times you get people who, yes, you have the entrepreneurship identity a lot of times, but you also have this passion about being a craft brewer. And so this idea of rising tide and pay it forward, we really saw kind of come out within our research. Do you feel like that is a, a way of doing business that can apply to other industries or is craft brewing kind of just its its own unique entity? We've actually seen it in a lot of different industries. And so it's something you see it a lot in even in craft, in, in the world of craft itself. So any sort of cottage industries, small businesses, we see that more so because it actually a lot of times comes down to are we going against the big macro level or or the big organizations, right? Like we're going against the the Walmarts and, you know, the targets. We're trying to actually not be them. We're trying to be something different. Mm-hmm. And when you get that, I want to be different mentality and it's part of a culture, you get people who are more willing to work together. And so we have seen this in multiple different industries and the craft was kind of our insight into seeing what was going on. So interesting. Um, and of course, another big theme as we started this conversation with Janet is just being really people focused as a leader, as an entrepreneur, mentoring and and knowing how to how to lead and then how to exit. A- any big takeaways on that front? Oh, absolutely. I think her final comments when she was talking about the value of relationships and how, you know, 20 years ago, that was those relationships still flourish, you know, for her today. And one of the things that has also been an area of research has looked at, I've looked at advice and when you use advice and how do we use advice? When are we most receptive? Mm -hmm. And the thing that she really honed in on, and it was kind of subtle throughout the uh, interview with her, but she talks so much about her mentors and advisors. Yeah. And that role of mentors and advisors is so critical. In fact, I have a friend who's actually in Silicon Valley. She's actually an executive in the tech world, which one is rare for a woman to be upper executive, you know, mm-hmm. a VP of, you know, user development at these major organizations and in a very male dominated industry. But her big thing is mentorships. She talks so much about how mentorship is such a critical thing. And she's very well established. And she has literally a network of five different people who are at her level or slightly above, who she goes to for advice when she's trying to make career decisions. And one of the best things she even gave to me was to say, hey, when you're looking at major career moves, talk to people who are 
at minimum at your level, but ideally slightly above your level who can really connect with you and understand, create a network. And I think Janet really has done that throughout her career. And like I said, it was, it was kind of this subtle thing when you started listening to it, you're like, oh, she keeps talking about her mentors and, you know, and people who advised her throughout it. And she knew when to do it too. When 2021, when she created that board of directors, she knew it was time to, to get that board of directors. She's like, I am now beyond what I know. Mm -hmm. And that is such a critical moment for an entrepreneur to realize is when are you out of your depth? And it doesn't mean you have to leave. It means you've got to get more help and information. Right, right. It's out there. You just have to ask for it. You got to be intentional about it. Well, Tara Galloway, great advice, great perspective. Thank you so much for for joining us on By All Means. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you to our presenting partner as well, the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thanks again for listening to By All Means. means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom Ferlitti. digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas opus college of business and schultz school of entrepreneurship especially dean laura dunham for all their support our theme music is by song finch thank you for listening to by all means